listening to us in my ears. Yeah. Being weird. But yeah, it's official now. We we're online. We have a name. We have an email address. It's been an eventful couple of weeks for us. Um, let's let's talk about that because we watched Valley Girl, and uh, then we. Oh, should I say hi? No, that's <laughs> fine. I, I mean, they're already listening. Yeah, at this we're point, here. We're so back. They know that we're here. Um, and we, and we were gonna call this podcast Cage Cast, which seemed so perfect. It's like a name just dropped out of heaven and. And then with a little research, found out that not only was there another podcast called CageCast about Nicolas Cage, but there were two Nicolas Cage podcasts basically doing the same thing. And one of them had gone through the whole filmography. And we got really sad and considered other directions. But I'm glad we didn't give up. We didn't give up. Because the thing is with these sorts of podcasts where it's essentially just people talking is that it's it's the perspective that yeah. matters. It's yeah. not it's not strictly the subject matter. And and you know what? Like I I just don't care. Like this is about our personal journey. Miles. <laughs> this is, I mean, because if we're not okay, we're we're not the first people to appreciate Nicolas Cage. I mean, even as a meme, he's kind of like it, it's already oversaturated. Like, like that's fine. Like that's I don't need anyone else to be to be pleased with this. I just want to watch them all. Right, and I feel like if I don't have an end goal, then there's no incentive for me to continue watching every Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah. Now that I say that out loud, I realize well. Still, I'm not sure that this is much of an incentive to spend that much time of your life on it, but I'm going to. You know, I'm already the three three movies, so yeah. what is that? Like like three and a half to four hours? No, more than... Well, the first one was like a pilot. Yeah. So we're like four and a half hours deep right now yeah. in Nicolas Cage. Yeah. So I feel like we can maybe... I mean, you know, what's four and a half hours or a hundred hours? Right. You know, we might as well just barrel forward with in it. In for a penny, in for a pound. You know, the the other incentive that I got was I had forgotten that I had ordered three Nicolas Cage biographies online. Did you bring them with you? Yeah, I brought yes, them. Yes, let's look at these. Um, we have the, the best one so far is Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli. Uh, so is this just a book specifically on Captain Corelli? No. Or I, is it the, about his career in general also? The, they're all about his career. They're all like uh, like quickie biographies. Um, unauthorized biographies, which I don't even know if this is still, if there's still a market for this. I think with Wikipedia and whatnot, it, yeah. it's kind of, it doesn't really exist anymore. Because these all kind of cover the same ground. Um, that, that one And is, they all have insane portraits, like photos of him on the cover. Yeah, well, that one is, is like mid-2000s Nicolas Cage. This is like Cage the Serious Actor. 21st August 2001, With Love from Possum. Yeah, it's written on the interior. I... Someone was given that, gifted that book. I would be so happy if someone gifted me this book. Then there's Nicolas Cage, Hollywood's Wild Talent, which is from around Wild at Heart. He's got wearing the snakeskin jacket on the front. This one's got a lot of good pictures oh, in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, though, the internet is kind of... 
<laughs> made this completely uh, not important. And my favorite, Uncaged, the biography of Nicolas Cage, uh, which is not the best, but definitely is written with the most attitude. And you can tell, too, from looking at it. It's got these, uh, these splash quotes on the back. This is from Patricia Arquette, a.k.a. Mrs. Cage. It says, we stay at home and talk a lot, laugh a lot, jump on the bed, bark at each other. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> Gotta read. N- and Nicolas Cage saying, if I hadn't been an actor, I'd be in jail. I feel like a lot of people, a lot of artists say that. Yeah. I've, I've, I've read interviews with multiple actors or musicians, mostly like, you know, iconoclasts and, or extreme individuals in, in these fields that claim that if they hadn't done it, they would have, you know, ended up as a criminal yeah. because they need some way to, to, to funnel all of their psychosis, I guess. I mean, I don't really know what yeah. drives someone to have that kind of... Well, I, I mean, see, this is the, the the switch that happened for me between our last episode and now is I feel like I'm becoming a, a scholar. Um, I I've I don't know what the definition of that is, but it, in this case, it means I'm reading books. <laughs> I have. Uh, Do you need any kind of degree to be a scholar? Like, is scholar. is is scholar as a term? Does that mean anything specific, or, or does it is just it mean just that you yeah. literally read? I, I don't know. Um, maybe you have to have like written a, a journal or something. Um, well, it's not too late to start. You no, know? I, I, I think mean, I think we should turn this podcast into a journal. This when is. We're done. I read these the opening of these books in tandem, which is what I'm kind of continue to do as we go through this, um, which is really weird because uh, you get some of the same quotes and some different quotes. It all kind of covers the same ground, um, but I filled in some gaps uh, in. Our, our sort of initial portrait of Nicolas Cage. Okay, young Nicolas Cage, born in uh, in a suburb to August Coppola, his father, um, brother of Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, and August was an artist and professor and uh, total weirdo. That Nicolas Cage has a story about a Thanksgiving dinner when August just brought home a bunch of paper plates and crayons and told them to draw their own food. There was no food involved. It was just an art project. No. Nicholas Cage is like, I mean, we were hungry. (laughs) um, And there's not a lot of context to that story either. Like it's in a couple of these books, but it's not like, you you know, I, you kind of don't know how, if that's like, indicative of something really dark and and bad or just like it's kind of kooky um yeah like where's the line between kooky and totally insane i mean the the what is kind of dark is his mom uh was was mentally ill through a lot of his childhood okay here's some other things uh the best of times he got five thousand dollars to be in that and immediately went out and bought a triumph spitfire car and uh, would drive it around uh, Hollywood listening to the Beatles' Baby, You're a Rich Man, which became his own personal anthem for success. Really? Yeah. Wow, that is so on the nose. <laughs> right? Same, same with after Landing Valley Girl. Like, he, uh, he would just tool around listening to that. So those scenes in Valley Girl where he's cruising Hollywood and, yeah. like, yelling out the window at everybody Pulled he knows. Pulled from life. Yeah, so that's, that was just a biography of Nicolas Cage's <laughs> life at that time. Yeah. 
Um, oh, he he left school uh, after he was cast in Oklahoma, and but the was, musical, yeah, but Wait. was not cast in West Side Story. So he left school because he's like, I'm a I'm an actor. And Which is funny because he ended up playing a a West Side Story type character in in, in a number of these early films right. as a teenager. Right. So I I wonder if he felt like he was somehow. I wonder if he felt that he was somehow meant for that role, or that that role that that type of role spoke to him very specifically. Yeah, he really circles around that kind of. I mean, all these kind of like bad boy, uh, gang like tough guy, sensitive tough guy tropes in again and again. Um, I mean, especially in Rumblefish, which we're going to talk about today. Um, little detail, we were talking about, he was on uh, the Fast Times set and being mocked by the uh, the other actors. What they were yelling outside of his trailer was, I love the smell of Nicholas in the morning. <laughs> That's not even clever. I know. It is kind of hurtful, though. No, I, I definitely understand how that could be cruel. Yeah. And especially when you are at a point in your career where you're not really sure that this is going to work. Right. You know, and you're putting a lot on the line. Right. And to just have people, like, shoot you down for reasons that have nothing to do with the actual skill or business of acting, which are the two most important aspects of it. The fact that it's so stupid almost makes it worse. Right. Okay, so he decides he's going to change his name to Nick Cage, uh, based not just on Luke Cage, like I knew, but also John Cage. Whoa, interesting! Really? That yeah. is really interesting. I wonder if that's like a retroactive thing because I don't it seems know. Like it. like it seems like he realized He's that like, naming himself after Luke Cage was like going to start <laughs> sounding stupid. So he was like, "Oh, I got to think of another famous Cage to like cover my tracks." You don't believe he was like seventeen and like, and, like geeking out on no, John Cage? No, I guarantee he was not at home like trying to buy up the like box set greatest hits of John Cage. <laughs> um, other names he considered though, Nick Faust. And Nicholas Blue. I mean, all things considered, I think he went with the right choice. Yeah, if far, those were his other options, far and above. Um, I, I'm going to read. Uh, this is a passage from the unauthorized biography Nicholas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli. Why did they choose Captain Corelli? Was that just the most recent Nick yeah, Cage movie that had come been. out when they published it? I don't even know if that movie was like a big hit or anything. I don't. I don't, I, I don't even. The thing is, I didn't even remember that it existed until I saw this book. And then I was <laughs> reminded like, oh, yeah, I guess Nicolas Cage did that in like 2002 or whatever uh, yeah, it was. As if yeah. there were people in the bookstore being like, who was that that brilliant actor? Behind? As if they had never heard of him yeah. before then. <laughs> right. Like that was his breakout role. Who's the man behind Captain Corelli? So if, he told Francis Ford Coppola. So this, this is what's really interesting to me about Rumblefish and the subsequent films he made with Francis Ford Coppola is he, he wants to get away from the Coppola name. So he changes his name. Um, but he's still totally like the nepotism is still there because, um, he, he tells Francis Ford Coppola, you know, he's like, I can act. And he tries out for the outsiders, which Coppola made before, uh, Rumblefish, but got rejected and uh, then um, Coppola had him reading uh, in uh, Rumblefish with people and, and cast him in the small role of Smokey. So it's weird because he's, he's rejecting the family name, but he also, I, I mean, I it's think... Clear, is clearly using his family to his advantage. And, and with, without Francis Ford Coppola, I mean, 
we we have Rumblefish, uh, Cotton Club, and Peggy Sue got married. Like, wait, Coppola did Peggy Sue got married? Yeah. I didn't realize he did that movie. Yeah. Oh, that that makes that okay. That's right. interesting. Um, and so he's basically responsible. Like Coppola is responsible for for Nicolas Cage's entire yeah, pretty he, much early output, with the exception of Valley Girl. Yeah. Well, and, and Nicolas Cage was doing other movies, but Peggy Sue is the movie that besides Valley Girl that really like put him on the map and that because his performance is so loopy in it. And I mean, and honestly, I mean, we'll talk about that movie later, but who besides his uncle would have allowed him to do that performance? Like, I, I think like if he, he's both, he both rejects his family's, uh, you know, his family name, but still totally used it. Um, here's a quote from, from this book referring to Rumblefish. Again, it was not an easy shoot for Nick. Although he had changed his name, everyone knew who he was, and he was acutely aware of his lack of experience compared to his co-stars. He said, they seemed to know some secret that I didn't. I didn't know where they got their fire, so I locked myself up in my room and read books on Japanese management systems because I thought my character would probably grow up to be a businessman. And Coppola made no concessions to family connections. Once Francis made me do 42 takes, a scene looking at a watch, and I'd never had to do 42 takes again in my whole career, he said at the end of 1995, looking back on making the movie. I know that was like some kind of strange trial that I had to go through. The next year, he again hinted to Movie Line Magazine, Movie Line Magazine, <laughs> that's, that's the source for getting quoted, uh, that Coppola was being deliberately harsh. I still don't know what the reason was for that. He went on referring to the watch incident. My first two takes were the best. I got a phone call after that movie from my father who said, you're too restrained as an actor, and I'm getting this from a very high level. I don't think you have what it takes. I thought, who the hell's he been talking to? I guess people in my family were not impressed with the character. Okay. So several things. First of all, that has to be the only time anyone has ever told Nicolas Cage he was too restrained. <laughs> like did he take that really to heart <laughs> i think he did and in some ways i feel like maybe that criticism informed the rest of his career his dad is like you're you're holding too much back no well and and you know it's interesting because i think people don't give enough credence to the fact that, you know it's kind of a stereotype at this point but when you when when young men are criticized Mm -hmm. in a certain way by their father, they do, like, it really does lead to certain types of overcompensation later sure. on. Sure, sure. And, uh, I mean, he he also, so his dad's given him that. His mom is kind of, like, in the woods mentally, and he he is just, uh, I mean, he's a workaholic at this point. He's just, like, really committing his time. I mean, reading about Japanese management systems for this role, I mean, he he has, like, three scenes in this movie. Yeah, and you never at any point in the movie think, oh, that guy's going to grow up to be a businessman. Yeah. And and I, it kind of touches, I don't know how to broach this because it this whole thing, including the movie, which is all this these male relationships, and uh, Rumblefish is about two brothers, and it's actually dedicated by Francis Ford Coppola to August Coppola, uh, Nick's dad, Um Francis being the younger brother who looks up to his older brother who's kind of a crazy fuck up. And I, I mean, there there's weird layers there. Then you have like 
then you have the two the two older Coppola's watching it and criticizing. Yeah, right. It's like, uh, I mean, there's just so much like weird, like wounded masculinity and pride and stuff just in the DNA of this movie. And in a way, you feel it. Yeah. When you watch the movie, you feel that wounded masculinity. And it doesn't come across as uh, tortured as maybe us making that yeah, statement might sound right, right, right. the thing is really uh, it's it's a lot it's i think it's a phenomenally like uh well articulated film yeah. like in the sense that you go into it thinking it's going to be one thing and it entirely changes your perception and you don't think you're not really taken aback by the fact that you're surprised by where it went you just kind of accept it because yeah. of the way that it's laid out yeah. for you yeah, and I, I want to talk about that. I, I want to read a couple more things from these books before we... Um, so this is Francis Ford Coppola saying, I was funny looking, not good in school, and I didn't know girls. Augie was great to me and always looked out for me, but in addition, he did very well in school and received many awards for writing and other things, and he was like the star of the family. I did most of what I did to imitate him. I even took his short stories and handed them in under my name, when or I took his short stories and handed them in under my name when I went to my writing class in high school. My whole beginning in writing started in copying him, thinking that if I did these things, I could be like him. I always wanted to be handsome and smart and a ladies' man like Augie. My father had talent and my brother had talent. I didn't. The issue of talent was an important thing, and then I realized that you don't have to have talent. You just have to have a lot of enthusiasm. August Coppola did not, as his father had hoped, become a medical doctor. He won a PhD in comparative literature and a pioneer of studies with the blind, taught at California State University in Long Beach, where he invented the tactile dome. His son Nicholas recalls, You crawl in total darkness and feel your way through sponges and netting, and you fall into two tons of birdseed and land on a waterbed. But we were going through the exhibit when we were like six, and it scared the shit out of me. Looking at it now, it's brilliant. Disneyland wanted him to do one, but he wouldn't because he wanted it to be free. I actually, I, I've gone through one of those tactile domes. Really? They have one at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. No shit. And, uh, With the bird seed and everything? I don't know if it was bird seed at the bottom, but it was some kind of like spongy mattress material that you like come at the end, you come down a slide and like land on it. Um, yeah, my, my, uh, a really good friend of mine in college, her dad, was like one of the main designers for a bunch of exhibits at the Exploratorium. No so way. I went to go visit her and he took us through like privately after hours. And like, there were like three or four of us and we were just like 20 something, like just out of college. And we were like fucking around in this like dome what? that was meant for like kids. It was pretty cool. Anyway, that's a complete digression from, no, that's, from Nicholas Cage. I had but, no idea that but that I, existed. I didn't realize, I didn't realize that that's so crazy. He invented that that. That, that. that that was invented by Nicholas Cage's dad. <laughs> that makes the, I wish I'd known that when I did it. I feel like, I don't know if I would have gotten anything more out of it, but it would have at least informed the experience for sure in a, in a different way. Oh, um, so this is the last thing I'm going to read and then we can talk about the, the movie, but I feel like this all informs it. Um, so this is about his, his mom. Um, she would go away for years at a time. When she got too erratic, she went away. Then my childhood consisted of going to see her, and that hallway was a long hallway, let me tell you, going in there with the crazy people who would be touching, and it was very arresting. She was plagued with mental illness for most of my childhood. And he's talking about uh, going to a, an asylum, obviously. 
She was institutionalized for years and went through shock treatments. She went through these episodes of poetry. I don't know what else to call it. She would say the most amazing things, beautiful but scary. I'm sure they had an impact on me. If I look at home movies of when I was two years old, I see that she was a very caring mother, the way she touched me. I remember one birthday when I was scared by all the candles. I'd try to run away, and she would turn me back. It was very beautiful, but the hardest part of going to visit her in the institutions, I was quite young. As I said, there was a long hallway we had to walk down to see mom past people grabbing at us. At the end of it, she was always there sitting, waiting. Sometimes she would go into Rip Van Winkle mode and forget everything that had happened, that her father died or I'd become an actor. She's fine now, but much time was lost. So she got better and her dad, or his dad stayed with her through this like 16 years of her being mentally unwell. And this that's, is that's serious devotion. Yeah. That's and, crazy. And, uh, this last quote, um, as this is happening, um, Nicholas Cage is, this is kind of like the, the, the thing that, uh, played from that commencement speech, the, in the first episode, uh, he's talking about wanting to get into the television set. I just like this cause it's insane. Um, it was this beautiful little Zenith TV that had wood and had an oval screen. I would sit there just wishing I could get inside that TV. That was when I first realized I wanted to be an actor. I was so mystified by the tiny people. Dinosaurs were inside the TV and Jerry Lewis. I do so remember sitting there on the red carpet around throw rug and wanting to murder Mr. Green Jeans, who was the most boring thing about the Captain Kangaroo show. <laughs> wow, what? That is dark, man. Yeah, that's the quote. All of that, reading all of that, since doing the last couple episodes and watching Rumblefish, like, really shaped for me um, uh, this whole this whole experience, our whole experience, our journey, Miles. And it, it is quite a journey. It's it's already shaping up to be more of a journey than I expected, and we're only three films in. I mean, do do you agree that like the psychological like layers of that fit into this movie in oh, absolutely. this weird way? Absolutely. All right, so let's. I, I kind of cut you off. We, we started talking about the Rumblefish actual movie, and I I thought it was great. You thought it was great. I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah, and I actually thought I had seen it before. I, I think I mentioned this in last week's episode at the end when we were talking about what was coming up. But I thought I had seen it before, many years ago. But uh, what I had actually seen was the Outsiders. The Outsiders. Well, the um, Outsiders is much more well known. Right. But, but but this but this actually I mean I I want to go back and rewatch the Outsiders because it's been a, a while. Yeah, I've never but seen it. I I think that Rumblefish more is more of my sensibility. Yeah, as somebody yeah, more my taste in movies than the Outsiders was. It's it's so good. It's so good. And Coppola had this really interesting. He he kind of after Apocalypse Now mm -hmm. he kind of just veered off. And did so many things that I feel like, so many films that I feel like were not Coppola material. Yeah, well, they don't they don't fit in with what I mean. They're not The Godfather or right. Ap or Apocalypse Now. I mean, I, or The Conversation. I mean, what what happened according to IMDb is that he made One from the Heart, a movie directly after Apocalypse Now, and everyone thought Apocalypse Now was going to be a a huge disaster because it was way over budget and and everything, and it turned out to be phenomenal and amazing but i think people didn't like it when it first came yeah. out and then it was a, and then within a couple years people started warming up to it but i i think when it first came out as is the case unfortunately right. uh the hype of the film overshadows the actual film at the time of its release yeah i mean the knives were out and he made one from the heart 
and which I've not seen. Have you? I, I haven't. I I've heard it's not good, but interesting. But it, and it just got savaged and like went way over budget again. And according to him, all the films he made in the '80s and '90s were basically to get himself out of bankruptcy. That um, it was that bad. Yeah. Wow. It, it really sunk him. So, he, I mean, he made that. Then he made The Outsiders, uh, which was also by S. E. Hinton, um, who wrote Rumblefish, and uh, what was the other one? It's not. It's not River's Edge. It's. Oh, what is it? I don't um, know. It's some other movie with Emilio Estevez. Mighty Ducks. No, I, I don't. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, she she was everywhere for a while. I guess writing these like tales of young teens and their drama. But yeah, he did that, and then into. I mean, and that's why like, yeah, Peggy Sue got married. Fucking Jack with Robin Williams. Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> man, dude, some Coppola deep cuts yeah. up in here. The Rainmaker. All about Jack. That's an insane <laughs> film to make. But I mean, this is the, this is like you you could kind of draw the line then from can you? Apocalypse I guess, Now. Yeah, I guess you can. <laughs> Outsiders, Rumblefish, something, 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 Jack. <laughs> like, anyway, and he never never looked made it back. <laughs> it's kind of like. Have you seen there? There's this movie called Twixt that I, came out I'm a couple years ago. I'm fascinated with it, but you I have see not it. seen I, it. I, I actually watched it. It is it's wholly, about Kilmer, right? Yeah, it is wholly bizarre in a very specific way. Um, and I don't need to get into it because this is not the time or place to go off on that. This but, is like Fat Val Kilmer with like a ponytail. Oh, dude, right? it's like, it's the fattest Kilmer that you could possibly <laughs> imagine. Like, I think he actually, I think he. This was five or six years ago, so I think he's. I think he's lost weight since yeah, then. Yeah, but this this was better. at the height of the fat Kilmer phenomenon. It was like absurd. I it's, should say that when when we were uh, discussing what we should do if we weren't going to continue doing a Nicolas Cage podcast, we we talked about Val Kilmer, but the filmography was just too hairy r- and depressing. Rough road. <laughs> rough road. <laughs> so, um, he was in a Ten Commandments musical, which yes. I didn't know about till yes. I till I started doing my research on his <laughs> filmography. And that I'm actually kind of injured. I, I might try to look look that up just to watch some of it because it's like like Fat Kilmer is Moses. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> they don't even try to make him look Egyptian. He's he just looks like he showed up on stage in a bathrobe. <laughs> he did probably. <laughs> and anyway, what were we talking about? Um, oh, Coppola. I don't know. <laughs> this movie's good. Um, <laughs> so. I forgot how fucking stacked this movie is with the like cast, up the, and coming talent. The cast is crazy. Holy shit. Uh, okay. Um, you have Matt Dillon, perfectly cast. Probably the only movie that I've actually enjoyed Matt Dillon in. Yeah, I agree. But he's he's great in this. He's the perfect role for him. And he's beautiful. He's like a be- he and Mickey Rourke are like beautiful men. And Diane Lane, such a babe. Fuck, man. She's 18 and I felt so creepy watching this because I was like, so foxy. I was perving. She, I mean, there's those fantasy scenes of her in like negligee, like lounging in like shop class. <laughs> but I mean, then we got Dennis Hopper, Chris Penn, Lawrence Fishburne, and Sofia Coppola, who, you know, what, years later when Francis Ford Coppola made The Godfather 3, he cast her, his daughter, um, 
in it and people just savaged her. They fucking hated her. But I think she's great in this as the little sister. Yeah. You know, to, I mean, you know, as good as can be expected. Yeah. She it, she gave me uh, a little bit of like a Drew Barrymore in E.T. Vibe. Right. Yeah. She's a bratty little kid sister. It's, you know, it's good. So stacked cast. Oh, Tom Waits. Let's not forget. Oh, yeah. Tom Waits. <laughs> as oh, the wise man. soda jerk. Oh, man. <laughs> Dude, I totally forgot about Tom Waits in this movie. I just watched it like a week and a half ago and I already forgot. How do I not it, write that down? It's that stacked. And then visually, it's so gorgeous. Like the cinematography is phenomenal. It's amazing. It's the, got like a German expressionist. Mm -hmm. Like it's all all of the shit. Like the you witness most of the action via shadows. Yeah, I feel like it's it's very it's it's extremely stark black and white. Yes. And, uh, and very like expressionist with just with two splashes of color, which are the, the, oh, the fish. fish, the yeah. actual rumble fish yeah. are the only are the only things in color in the whole movie. And, and then right. there's smoke and clocks everywhere. There, the symbol. I mean, I think one of the things that kind of gets on people's nerves about this movie who, who can't get on board is how um, it, it's not subtle. It like the the imagery is all very on the nose, like. And I mean, and we're dealing with characters who, um, like Matt Dillon's character is, uh, he's not smart. He says all of, he, he just kind of wears it all on his sleeve and, and he's like, it, it's all on the surface. And then there's all this shit that it's equally deep, but everything that's in the subtext is also in the text. Right. And I think people kind of knock it for that, but... I'm, I mean, it's a genre movie. It's it's a oh absolutely a, a movie about teenagers and growing up. the The text can be blunt because that's just the kind of movie it is. And that's also the way the teenagers think. Yeah, exactly. That's the way teenagers view the world. It's exactly. very black and white, and it's very blunt. And the subtext is not subtext. I mean, it's just, just that's there's no you know right. There's there's not a lot of subtlety in the thinking. The the thing that I thought was really cool about it was that you couldn't you couldn't really tell. It felt like a 50s teen movie. Yeah. But it was ostensibly set in the 80s, but you couldn't really right. tell what time period it was in. Right. Or where it was set. Or yeah, it, it was sort of just I, I loved that too. I mean, there was like there are moments. I mean, I want to talk about Stuart Copeland's score, which is another thing that people I've heard people knock about it, but that I, I also really liked. Um, and also kind of like places it in the eighties cause it's got these like synth elements and, um, no shit. I bought it. You uh, bought the cassette. Yeah. I, I, I bought the cassette of the soundtrack oh, yeah. a couple years ago because so just good. cause I, I really like the police and, and, and as a drummer, Stuart Copeland is one of my yeah. inspirations. Me, and and I mean, so I bought it and I didn't really know that it existed at all, really. And I didn't definitely never heard any of it. So I just kind of bought it on a whim. It was like uh -huh. 99 cents at a Goodwill. Oh, so you'd already heard it. So I, I'd i listened to this score like numerous times before I saw the movie. Yeah. That's funny. You're because uh, <laughs> I, I love the police too. And uh, so I was, you know, pre predisposed to liking all of the, the it's kind of like what, like ska would you say elements or i wouldn't say ska. i wouldn't say like, ska i mean it's more reggae, reggae than ska yeah. if anything but it's not even reggae strictly no. it's got a weird it's actually funny you were you were talking about uh about clocks 
yeah. as as being yeah. like a take taking up a, a huge symbolic part of this movie, and you can you can tell listening to the score because a lot of the score is built on. Not not specifically TikToks, yeah, but, but it's percussions, but very yeah. rhythmic percussions mm-hmm. that move in loops. Yeah, uh, and that helps feed that feeling of like everything is very like on time. Yeah, I noticed you know? the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it made me think that because again, like you know, it's not an accident that the clocks are so like prominent. It makes me think that Coppola was like. Okay, here's what's important. Like, oh, clocks. I think yeah, I like, think he absolutely was. Like, I I'm pretty sure he's obviously I don't know for yeah. a fact, but I'm I, I imagine listening to the to the music and seeing the film that Coppola sat Stuart Copeland down. Yeah, and he was like, okay, so clocks are really important, and mm-hmm. they symbolize whatever these things, whatever he wanted them to symbolize, and he explained it that way, and then uh, Stuart Copeland integrated that into the score. And and there's these elements to the score that I think are are great because it, again the all the pieces in it are really simple um and they a lot of them have kind of a, a happy edge if you want to like at least like retro like our kind of like view of reggae retroactively there's this kind of like bounciness or like um you know major chords but then there's also this like melancholy and dread that kind of goes through it like sort of like synth strings and stuff that like it's it's really unique the 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 feel and tone of it is really unique uh i'm looking at my notes now people say the the name rusty james about a million times um yeah but do we ever see oh no yeah that's yeah. that's Mandela. Yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> rusty james well then who's who's the guy at the end that shows up who who he had been oh his brother right who he had been looking for motorcycle boy yeah right right motorcycle boy yeah make you okay oh yeah oh yeah i have this written down right here in giant letters i guess because i wrote it before that the climax (laughs) of the movie but it's like who is motorcycle boy right they keep talking about motorcycle boy but he doesn't show up till the end well i mean no he's there he's really yeah he's mickey rourke is the motorcycle boy why did I think? Okay, I think I think I'm getting two characters confused. I think then. so, but it ends on that graffiti that says, "Motorcycle boy lives." Or something yeah, like something that. like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, and the whole. Okay, I I thought the whole rumblefish metaphor was really beautiful. Again, so I mean, it, it it's, it's the opposite of subtle, but it's still it hit me. Okay, you have these the the fighting fish. That if they're in the same, you know, area of water together, they'll kill each other. And if they see a mirror, then they want to kill the mirror. They end up killing they themselves. They attack the mirror until they kill themselves. Yeah. But if they could just get to the river, the river's big enough and it goes to the ocean and they can be free. I mean, come on. There was a nice mixture of bleakness and like romanticism in yeah. this movie like it almost made the bleakness romantic in uh-huh. the same way that like uh that like a like a Chekhov play or right. like you know like Camus yeah exactly or, exactly um, I mean it's the whole I mean there's so many callbacks to like James Dean and stuff it's it's the very classic young rebel who is too soulful for this world <laughs> you know <laughs> and again there's the whole movie is men there's Except yeah. for uh, except for Diane Lane, Diane Lane and, and the little sister, and, I think it's yeah, all men, it's the all whole men. cast, and then like a like a couple prostitutes who like you know oh, like yeah, oh right. and there's the girl the the junkie girl who's trying to get back with right. with Mickey Rourke right right but um you know something I really liked uh, you were talking about how this movie is uh, kind of more your 
your style than like the outsiders. And, and I was thinking about this too, is that like, we talk about gangs, like the motorcycle gangs, and we have these, these young tough men, but the gangs are gone. Like they talk about that a lot. Like, you know, back when, and uh, Matt Dillon, Rusty James kind of romanticizes the gangs, but you got his friend Steve just being like, no, that was bullshit. And then you have scenes like um, Nicolas Cage's big scene, I would say, where uh, he, it's revealed that he kind of stole Diane Lane from Matt Dillon, right. but not really because Matt Dillon was fucking around. And, uh, and uh, so Matt Dillon's like, let's go outside and they, t- to talk. And he's like, I'm not going to fight you. And they literally go outside and talk. Yeah. He's and, like, he's like, let's take this outside. Yeah. And then they just go outside and they talk. And, and I mean, Rusty James is like, so you planned, you planned it for, you know, us to go and party and for me to hook up with that girl. And then you could swoop in and, and take Diane Lane. And, you know, Nicholas Cage is like, yeah, I did. He's like, I never would have thought of that. And he's like, yeah, I'm smarter than you. He's like, yeah, I'm, that's, well, I'm sad. <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe that lends credence to the idea of Nicolas Cage believing that he would it's grow up to man. be a businessman because that's the kind of shit that, like, you know, powerful businessmen pull. It's and I, like, I believe it, too. I mean, when at the end, when Motorcycle Boy is dead and there's that beautiful pan across all of the characters in the movie who come down to see the body. Which could be cheesy. Could, yeah. But it was handled so well that it was like very poignant. I mean, the, it just the material, it, it completely fits the material. But yeah, I mean, a pan across every character to the, uh, to the graffiti on the wall. That, I mean, it's, it shouldn't work. But, but when we, it goes past Nicolas Cage and Diane Lane, I mean, they do already look like the you know, the couple who's gonna, you know, he had a couple wild years and now he's going to retire to suburbia and like, you know, pop out some kids and so, like, I don't know. He, which is funny because if you're going to talk about like a, a role for young Nicolas Cage, knowing Nicolas Cage, the actor now, like I, I wouldn't have like put him into that, that role. Um, who, who what, which role would you have cast him in? Do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I mean clearly I, I just would have liked to see him in any of the meteor roles just to see right. whatever, like, I, I don't think he would have been better than Matt Dillon or Mickey Rourke, but, um, but you know, I mean, I just like to see the fireworks go off, Yeah, <laughs> but still, um, I get why the businessman thing, there seemed to me a lot about this movie that also might've been improvised. Did you, did you, you get so? that feeling too? Like, I didn't. I feel like uh, some of the exchanges between the, the, the characters were so, I mean, maybe yeah. they were just really good actors, but they were so loose and conversational. Yeah. No, but I, I feel I, like I maybe, mean, maybe Coppola was just like, okay, we'll do a take where you guys just talk to each other the way you would normally, you know? Well, so much of it is, um, but maybe that's just like uh Hinton being a really good writer for Could like be. teens, you know? I, I mean, it, it is like men, young men interacting with other young men or older men. And there is a lot of like, you know, especially Matt Dillon's character is really inarticulate. So, um, yeah, you get a lot of scenes that do feel really loose because he, he can't articulate what he's feeling. And and it but works. But he feels so, so much. much, and you know what he's. And you feeling. know because you you almost feel bad for him because you can see how tortured he is. Yeah. Like you see how he feels, and then you see him struggling with how to with how to talk about it. Uh-huh. And, and he, you and you almost feel bad for him. And he's so naive, like talking. Uh, I I just the scenes where he's talking about 
Mickey Rourke to Mickey Rourke about how great he is and how he's going to be. He keeps being like, I'm going to look just like you in like a few years. And it's just like, oh, it's so poignant, man. Let's talk about that scene where he gets knocked out and leaves his body. Matt Dillon. Oh, yeah. yeah that was one of my that favorite was, parts. That was, an, that was a really great part of the movie. And at first I was like, what is going on? Yeah. Like, I thought that movie was going to go take a complete left turn uh-huh. and become something other than what it had been up to that point. And I was like, oh, really? Like, is this happening right now? I really <laughs> like enjoyed the train that I was on. Like, I wanted uh-huh. to see that to the end. And then he just comes back into his body at the end of that, at, at the end of that, you know, uh, scene. And then, and then it's just business as normal. Yeah, nothing again. does, nothing right. changes because he didn't, he, it's not, he, it wasn't a turning point for him in, ter- like he didn't learn anything because he's just, that's not his character. He had an, he had an out of body experience and didn't gain any knowledge from it. I mean, I love that he float in, in this experience, he floats above Diane Lane and her sister and they're just crying up missing him and he floats above Nicolas Cage and all of his boys and they they toast him <laughs> to Rusty James because in his mind he is like he he's succeeding his brother as you know the next like king cock of the walk king, and it's clear to everyone else that those that time is gone the time of the gangs is gone you know even like Nicholas Cage knows it. Steve knows it. It's all like, and, but he, he's just a little boy and I don't know. It's so beautiful. And I love that he floats out of his body and the way that Coppola stages it, he's just kind of like lying in the air and just drifting. Yeah. Like he doesn't get up and walk around. He no, doesn't, you know, he, he's just like, and I don't know. The pace of it is so you just see him slowly drifting through the sky. And, um, I don't know. It's I like that out of body experience thing, like has been done a bunch of times, at least since then, like I breaking bad did it. And, um, you know, I'm sure a bunch of other things have, but like, I've never seen one with that, that the same tenor of that scene. Um, because it didn't feel like an all-important moment where, no. like, where where things culminated for the main character. No, yeah, it's just a little. It's it's just he he's like struggling to mature through the movie, but he doesn't really until you uh, until maybe the end when he goes to the coast. But even then, I don't think that he matures. I think right. he, But I think he just leaves because he feels like he needs to preserve some kind of like legendary status yeah, and like, maybe. you know, cause like, cause, cause when motorcycle boy left, yeah. he, he attained some kind of, right. you know, like crazy, uh, like, like Messiah type, mm-hmm. uh, myth around him. And then, and then everyone was waiting for his return. So I feel like Matt Dillon, Matt Dillon's character, his whole reason for leaving at the end wasn't cause he had to go like quote unquote, find himself. I, it was, it was because he wanted to have that, he wanted to instill that same sense of like mystery oh, around his persona that that motorcycle boy had when he left. I mean, it definitely fits. I mean, yeah, motorcycle boy tells him to leave and he does, but thus maybe becoming the next motorcycle boy. I mean, really, maybe it's just an endless like circle that never ends. Yeah, you know? I, I feel like if he ever comes back, though, 
he's just going to be like completely out of his out of time, you know? He'll be like 25 years old and like Nicolas Cage and Diane Lane will have like kids. Yeah, and, like, exactly. He'll, he'll, be, he'll be like going to like a nine to five <laughs> and like uh, and like Rusty James will come back and be like, Hey man, uh, can I can I stay on your couch for a few nights? <laughs> yeah, I, the the sequel would be really depressing. Rumblefish two. <laughs> can we talk about the opening fight scene? Yeah, yeah. Because that was the most artistically f- filmed like teen gang fight that I have ever seen in a yeah. film ever. It was like. I mean, it was like dance. It was again. It was like a West Side Story thing. It was right. like a dance almost, and yeah, like the except camera they're movements, not dancing. right? Except they're yeah. not dancing. But like the way the camera movements mm-hmm. followed their movements, and like the editing gave it like it was it was uh it it elevated it to like pure art. It was crazy, right? And what's cool is you know I, I, West Side Story is the obvious uh, like touchstone, but West Side Story the camera is following the dancers and the dancers have all this grace. But in Rumblefish, the camera and the editing is very graceful, but the people aren't. Like you they they're choreographed well. So, you know, two people are running over here and the camera follows them and then but they're but they're just kids scrapping. But the way it was staged was beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. And then the the uh, he gets stabbed at the end. Oh, that that like sweaty like and then, pill popping guy. And then the cop comes in and he and he breaks up the fight, but doesn't send the bleeding teen to the hospital I or know. anything. He's just like, "Hey, get out of here, kids!" And the kid. Meanwhile, there's just like a guy like bleeding on the ground. Yeah, I'm, I guess that's small town police justice. But but he has it out for the motorcycle boy. Like, what's up with? At the very end, Motorcycle Boy gets killed by the cops on his way to dump the fish into the river, but he didn't do anything. I mean, besides, clearly, he stole the fish from the... But, I mean, this police brutality. Yeah, that... Yes. The cop just had it out for him. He just wanted to shoot him. Yeah, but why? But why? There's no... That's the interesting thing about that, is that there was no backstory. I mean, you kind of... Or I took for granted that Motorcycle Boy had been, like, a... a, You know, some kind of force to reckon with in the community, and the cops were just ready to, like... Yeah, Yeah. right. So maybe for that reason, they, they wanted to take him out. But nothing in the actual movie gave us any indication about why the cops would just shoot Motorcycle Boy. Well, I, I think it plays into the kind of, um, again, this sort of teen, just general persecution that the, the adults are out to get you and to stop you, and they won't let you be yourself. They won't let you get to the river. Yeah, there, there's, a whole, uh, there's, there's a whole genre of, of movies throughout, you know, uh, Basically, since the '50s, I guess yeah. when like the idea of the rebel teenager yeah. was born. But you know, I mean, there, there's there's a there's a nice uh, history of like rogue teens gone yeah. wild as like a film genre, uh-huh. and I think this really, while being part of that, was above it. In yeah, a way. and yeah. that and and the symbolism and the analogy of you know the adults are out to get us informed the rest of the film, but it wasn't the point of the film. Well, it's it's like, you know, Apocalypse Now is one of the best war movies ever made, but it's also more than a war movie, you know? I, you could, I mean, you could say that about all of Coppola's movies. Well, well, I don't know all, all of, of Coppola's them, but, great movies. Right. Is the that, conversation is more than... Is more like than just what it's about. Yeah. The Godfathers are more than just what right. they're about. 
Yeah, and and this movie really does transcend the the genre, which I, like I think is what people struggle with. I think they try and box it in, and they don't understand that it accepts a lot of the tropes that are in its DNA to then transcend them. I mean, Coppola has said that it's one of his his uh, five favorite movies that he's done. I mean, it looks like as as a director, as a designer, as a cinematographer, as a as a uh, a composer, mm-hmm. it seemed like it was probably just so much to sink your teeth into. Yeah. Well, I'm excited that we're through the lens of Nicolas Cage. We're going to take this little like Coppola detour because we're going to look at the Cotton Club and Peggy Sue Got Married, which are both other interesting films. Um, the Cotton Club, I don't think, succeeds as much as as those other two films. But I think I, I, there's a lot more to say about Coppola, so uh, it's fun to to go down that little rabbit hole on our way. <laughs> um, I didn't look up what's what's next on. Um, oh, I actually uh, I didn't look it up either. Let's, let's yeah. look it up right now. Okay, so oh, n- next is Racing with the Moon, which is not a Coppola movie. It's uh, a period piece. Uh, oh uh, man, Nicolas Cage period piece that is music to my ears. It's uh, it, it's definitely less fun than than this, but um, I'll, I'll be interested to to watch it. 1984. Um, yeah, we got Racing with the Moon, The Cotton Club, Birdie, The Boy in Blue, and Peggy Sue Got Married, um, all of which are pretty funny. <laughs> all right, is there anything else we want to say about this? Uh, I would wholeheartedly recommend this film to yeah. like any any fan of films Movies. at all. I think it's a... I, I think it succeeds on nearly every level of a movie. Yeah, I, I really hope that, like, retrospectively it gets its due as... Because um, it's just... It's really unique. And and like you said, too, it's it's out of time. It doesn't... It seems like a, it takes place in, like, the 60s. Like, the stuff they reference sounds kind of like the 60s, but... Because, like, motorcycle... Like, teen motorcycle gangs is, like, a total, like, 50s, 60s-like thing. Right. You know? But it... It's not, you can't pin it down. It feels timeless. Um, I guess teen angst is timeless. Well, on that note, um, thanks for listening. And we'll be back next time with Racing with the Moon. Woo! Woo!